Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we continue our sermon series, Waiting for Messiah, exploring the hymns of Advent and Christmas. Would a rose by any other name still smell as sweet? Would that rose still harbor thorns upon its branches? Join us for the message, A Rose by Another Name. Church in Duncanville, Texas. Now, would a rose by any other name still smell as sweet, and would it still have thorns upon its branches? Well, later on, we'll be having the message, A Rose by Another Name. If you've not done so already, we invite you to make an offering to the ministry of this church. You can do that on our website, tumcd.org our church center app, or of course by writing a check and mailing it to the church. We have some really exciting worship opportunities coming in this next week. At 7 p.m. on the 24th, Christmas Eve, we will have our traditional Christmas Eve candlelight service, Christ, carols, and communion. Again, that'll be at 7 p.m. here on the 24th. It will be in person as well as uh, online on Facebook Live. Then on Christmas Day, the staff and I really had a discussion about this. On Christmas Day, we will be having a service at 11 a.m. online only. So that was the compromise that was met by many different constituencies. So Christmas Day, 11 o'clock, but it will be online only. But New Year's Day, we are having an in-person service, so don't party too hard New Year's Eve. I'm giving it a warning now. This morning we have the privilege of reading one of the most important and sacred texts for this season. It is found in the book of the prophet Isaiah, the 11th chapter, the first 10 verses. It reads as following. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall be upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide By what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp. And the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. 
They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. The word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. Amen. Amen. We're all familiar with that famous balcony scene from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. If you recall, because probably all of y'all read this in school, earlier that evening, Juliet Capulet and uh, Romeo Montague had met at a masquerade party, and they fell instantly in love. The only problem was that their two families were locked in a vicious, violent blood feud. So any romance between a Capulet and a Montague was just unthinkable. Well, back in her room after the party, Juliet goes out on the balcony, and thinking that she, she is alone, she declares her love for Romeo despite him being a hated Montague. But unbeknownst to Juliet, Romeo has snuck into the, or- the orchard beneath her window and overhears her declaration of love. He then reveals himself and he declares his love for Juliet. And they agree to meet the next day and marry despite their family's ongoing enmity for each other. Now, the balcony scene contains several lines that are recognized by almost everyone, even if they've never read Romeo and Juliet or seen it performed on stage. In fact, they may recognize it and not even be aware where that particular line or phrase comes from. I read a story once by a university English professor, and he was teaching a semester-long course on the works of Shakespeare. And about halfway through the semester, one of his students just exclaimed in exasperation, I don't know why everyone thinks Shakespeare is such a great writer. I mean, his works are filled with cliches. <laughs> you made to think about that one for a second. Well, among the many cliches in the balcony scene, but soft what light through yonder window breaks, it is the east and Juliet is the sun. Another favorite, O Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Good night, good night, parting is such sweet sorrow. And there's one more. Contemplating that the last name of her love is Montague, the last name of the family to which her family has sworn eternal enmity, Juliet muses, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Call Romeo Montague by any other name, and he would still smell as sweet to the love-struck Juliet Capulet. Well, the uh, the hymn we sung earlier, Lo, How a Rose Ere Blooming, refers to a type of rose that we usually call by another name. And that rose is Jesus Christ. As we had just sung, Lo, how a rose ere blooming from tender stem hath sprung, of Jesse's lineage coming, of those of old, as those of old have sung. It came a floweret bright amid the cold of winter when half spent was the night. 
The earliest version of the hymn dates back to the 15th century in the St. Albans Monastery in the German city of Trier. The symbolism of the rose, however, goes back long before that, much further back. And sometimes the symbolism of the rose stands for the Virgin Mary, and other times it stands for Jesus Christ. But it was the early Protestants that took the rose to definitively refer to Christ and then connected it with this Isaiah passage that Garth just read. A shoot shall come out of the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now we can see this scripture reflected then in the middle line of that first stanza that we just sang, of Jesse's lineage coming as those of old have sung. And you'll also see when after the sermon we'll be singing the second verse and the second verse starts with this line, Isaiah, t'was foretold it, the rose I have in mind. Well, it wasn't until the 5th century A.D. when the translation of the Bible into Latin that the church began to interpret this particular 11th chapter of Isaiah Christologically. Christ was the ideal king, the shoot that grew from the stump of Jesse. As it says, a shoot shall come out of the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So who's Jesse? Well, as many of you know, Jesse was the father of David, who was the greatest king of ancient Israel. And the Lord promised David that his throne and his kingdom would endure forever. But we know from history, however, that the ancient kingdoms of Israel and Judah were both conquered and sent into exile. And ever since, except for a very brief period right before the Romans came, the Jews had lived under foreign occupation and dominion. It seems as if the house of David had been cut down to its roots with only a stump remaining. But in the 5th century, Christian theologians started to see that Christ was the shoot that grew out of the stump of Jesse. God's promise to David was fulfilled in Jesus, a descendant of David. Christ was the king who was filled with the spirit, who judged with righteousness, who defended the poor and meek, protecting them from the wicked. And it was only a divine king that would finally and eventually bring peace, not only peace among people, but peace within creation itself, because no merely human king could ever bring that kind of peace the peace where the wolf lies down with the lamb. As often happens, Christian theology expressed through music and art. And um, if you'll show the slide, I want to show you one of the motifs that began to appear during the Middle Ages. And this particular motif is called the Tree of Jesse. And you'll find it in artworks, in paintings, and oftentimes uh, in stained glass. Uh, the most famous in the great cathedral uh, in Chartres in France. In the tree of Jesse, you see a sleeping man there at the bottom. That's Jesse. And as he lays there out of his side, you see, you see a branch, or in some renditions, it's a rod. And I'll explain why it's a rod here in a little bit. But you see this branch coming out of his side, going straight up, and it forms a kind of family tree. And there's kings and there's other holy figures appearing. And finally, this branch, or sometimes a rod, 
leads to the Virgin Mary and Christ there on her lap. Or sometimes the Virgin Mary and then the adult Christ will show right above the Virgin Mary. And in medieval times when Jews often experienced prejudice and oppression, the tree of Jesse was this surprising acknowledgement that Christianity had its roots in Judaism. Thank you very much. So why is it sometimes portrayed as a rod instead of a branch? Well, many of the words in this verse 1 of Isaiah 11, this, these words only appear very few times in ancient writings. So that means biblical scholars uh, aren't always exactly sure sometimes how those words should be translated. And there might be occasionally disagreement about that. St. Jerome, um, who was uh, the person who first translated the Bible into Latin, he decided that it was a rod coming out of Jesse's side. Because you see, the Latin word for rod was verga, which, as you can hear, sounds a lot like virgo, which is the Latin word for virgin. So that's where the early church theologians came to see this passage as referring to Christ as the rod. That is the virgo, or excuse me, the verga from the virgo that came from Jesse. And the King James Version uses rod, and sometimes you may even hear the phrase, the rod of Jesse. Now, biblical scholars are unsure what the original historical context of this text might be. Perhaps it, re it refers to the return of the Jews from exile and their wish for an ideal king to lead them. It wasn't until much later in Jewish history, the second century after Christ, that Jewish rabbis started to interpret this passage as referring to the future Messiah. Now remember that many Jews in Jesus' time and for centuries afterward, they longed for a Messiah who would reestablish the kingdom of Israel. And Orthodox Jews are still looking for the Messiah to come. But most, most Jews here in America are Reformed Jews. And for the last few centuries, most Reformed Jews have interpreted the Bible's messianic references metaphorically. They look not for a specific individual Messiah, but instead they look toward the fulfillment of what they call the Messianic Age. And in the Messianic Age, all will worship the Lord and will follow the Torah, the law of the Lord, perfectly. No longer will we suffer from evil, sickness, and war, and there will be righteousness and peace. And as Isaiah said, the earth will be filled of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then to quote another uh, portion of Isaiah chapter 4, the people shall beat their swords in the plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And it is responsibility of the people of God to work to bring the messianic age to fruition. Now, these Jews no longer look to a future Messiah king to make the world right, because in their view, the people of God are the Messiah, that is, the ones that are anointed, or as it says then in Isaiah chapter 61, to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and to comfort all who mourn. And that's from Isaiah 61, but you may also recognize it as the text that Jesus read there in the synagogue in Nazareth and then said to the people there that this passage had been fulfilled 
in their hearing. Now, when I was first exposed to this idea of a messianic age, it was actually in conversation with a Jewish rabbi who was an adjunct professor there at Perkins. And I remember thinking, this idea of the messianic age, well, it sounds a lot like what we Christians talk about when we talk about the kingdom of God. And the idea that it's the people who embody the spirit of the Messiah in the world well, you know, that sounds a lot like the idea that we are the body of Christ, sent to be the hands and feet of the Messiah, Jesus, out in the world. While suffering through the living hell that was the Buchenwald concentration camp, there was a group of Austrian Jews who dreamed of moving to Palestine and, and starting a kibbutz, that is, a Jewish religious commune that centered around family and farming and worship. And the ones who managed to survive did just that. They made their way to Palestine and they founded their kibbutz. And there they raised generations of children, generations that would never have existed if the Nazis had fully succeeded in implementing their final solution to the question of the Jews. And this kibbutz still exists to this day. And the name of this kibbutz it's Netzer, which is the Hebrew word for branch. They see themselves as a branch that was able to grow from the stump of European Jewry. The Nazis had tried to cut down that tree that was the Jews, but God gave the root, made the roots of Jesse keep alive, and from those roots, many branches were able to blossom and grow. So is Jesus Christ a fulfillment of Isaiah's vision, a branch growing out of Jesse's roots? Yes, it is. And is the Netzer Kibbutz founded for, out of that living hell that was Buchenwald, was it also a fulfillment of Isaiah's vision that the evil of this world will never be able to uproot God's dream of a messianic age, the kingdom of God where the will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven? And the answer to that is also yes. While we may no longer wait for an ideal earthly king to make all things right, I do think the Bible has a lot to say about leadership. And so, first of all, in today's passage, we're told that the ideal king shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. You see, first the king establishes justice, and from that justice, then peace is established. And the order of these verses reminds me of the adage that I've often heard, and you may have as well. If we want peace, we must work for justice. It also underscores the truth that the character of our leaders matters. The integrity of our leaders is crucial for both justice and peace to be realized. When leaders lack character and integrity, then justice is perverted and peace becomes nothing but a pipe dream. You see, in the Bible, a king is never judged by how wealthy he is or how much territory he conquers. Throughout the scriptures, there are only two things that ultimately matter. Was the king faithful to the Lord and did the king seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow? That's the criteria. 
And that is true of leaders at all levels. At all levels from the, from the high school hall monitor up to presidents and prime ministers. Were you faithful to God? Did you seek justice for the marginalized? To the extent that they meet these criteria, then leaders have their place in fulfilling God's dream of justice and peace. Yet the full realization of this dream is really beyond our capability. We can, however, humbly work for peace and righteousness, but the kind of peace where the wolf lies down with the lamb, where all the children are safe from harm, where no one hurts or destroys on God's holy mountain, well, ultimately only God can do that. And Paul even talks about this in uh, the eighth chapter of his letter to the Romans. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So waiting for the coming of God is really what Advent is all about. We sit and we wait in whatever darkness we may find ourselves. And we often do find ourselves in the darkness. Yet we are still promised that someday they will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. And all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In Jesse trees, we see so much in medieval art. And I mentioned that the branch growing from the side of Jesse eventually leads to the Virgin Mary. And so from the tender stem of Mary, Jesus is often seen as the blossomed flower, or more specifically, a rose. And in the beauty of the rose, we behold the beauty of Christ. And the beauty that we will find in the face, really, of any newborn. But don't forget... Behind that beauty of that rose, there lies thorns, which presage the thorns that will someday pierce the head, the tender head of the babe in the manger. So we look forward, though, to the peaceful kingdom where the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. It's promised to us, it's just, it's not here quite yet. But remember that even in the darkest of times, in the coldest of winters, a child has been born for us and a son given to us, a floweret bright amid the cold of winter when half spent was the night. Amen. Just a reminder, the 24th, Christmas Eve, Candlelight service here, Christ carols in communion at 7 o'clock in person and streaming on live on Facebook Live. And then Christmas Day, 11 a.m., an online only service. And I'd like to particularly invite any of you who have been listening to us uh, or watching us online, please come visit us in person Christmas Eve. We would love to meet you face to face. But remember, you can always find recordings of our service on our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, or our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. And now receive this benediction. 
May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, for the Lord is near. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday is Christmas morning. Trinity United Methodist Church will have our worship service at the usual time, 11 a.m., but it will be online only. As usual, it will also be recorded. You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.